board is almost like a universal language. So, it's, and when you have these big competitions where you're bringing together people from across the world, it's kind of like really strong symbolism, I guess, of you know that idea of a global village. So, you, even with the Olympics, you you almost literally have a global village with all the athletes, even the fans. You have all these kind of side events and things that building those kind of people to people links. From ASEAN to Australia, this is ASIP On Air, the show where we amplify young voices, explore diverse perspectives, and deepen conversations on key issues across Australia and Southeast Asia. I'm Angie Suryasini, speaking to you from Adelaide, South Australia, on Ghana country. And in this episode, Tom Barber joins us from Melbourne, Australia, as we dive into how rugby and football aren't just tries and goals. They're dynamic players on the global field of diplomacy. And we'll explore how and why countries need to huddle up and work together for success in today's complex global landscape. So thank you for joining us, Tom. How are you today? Yeah, good. Thanks, Angie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm going well. It's it's a nice day in Melbourne, so happy to... (laughs) happy to have some warm weather yeah same here we've had some ups and downs like cold and hot weather but we're finally evening out heading into summer so yeah i think sports diplomacy is like a growing field we really appreciate you taking the time to talk on the topic and we might just kick it off with a little introduction about yourself if you wanted to tell us about your work as a program manager at ap4d yeah yeah i can give a little little bit of a spiel on that. So I, I began with AP4D actually two years ago, yesterday it was, and it's for those people who haven't heard of it, the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue is the, the full name. It's a bit of a mouthful, hence the acronym. But we kind of grew out of the insight that in a more difficult and kind of contested world, Australia needs to use all of its tools of statecraft to, to you know, increase its influence and maintain, even maintain its influence in the region and help build a more stable and prosperous region. And we do that by uh, bringing together government non-government experts from across the different communities so development diplomacy and defense but also other things like trade like policing pretty much every aspect of international kind of policy and we we really try to platform those expert ideas get really kind of focused consultations on particular topics and then push out options papers and blog pieces and things like that to kind of promote what comes out of those and yes i've I've been there for for two years now i think it's been a a really learning process for me it's kind of my first full-time job with my degree which is a master's of international security so yeah before that i did a couple of jobs like casual kind of research assistant kind of jobs at universities and things which were you know really good experience and stuff but i think it's a another kind of step up when you start doing a a full-time gig so yeah no it's been really interesting and from from the people that i've spoken with who've worked in these types of fields before the kind of impact we're having with the work we're doing is yeah really kind of positive so yeah i think that gives a a bit of a sense of of the types of things that i do yeah thank you for sharing that with us and congratulations on your two years there i'm sure you've made a a really big uh, impact and your research has had a really you know meaningful impact on all sorts of areas in diplomacy and on the topic of australia uh, looking at australia's foreign policy or how it engages with the region and builds onto its influence in the context of sports diplomacy i suppose Australia has been hosting like historic sporting events since the 2000 Summer Olympics and then the 2003 Rugby World Cup and most recently obviously the 2023 
FIFA Women's World Cup, which was a record-breaking success. And we were curious about what you might think it is that makes Australia a preferred destination for international sporting events. Yeah, look, I think I think over the years, Australia's really built a reputation for a kind of an ability to organise and host international sporting spectacles. So obviously the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, that gained Australia international plaudits. I think it was a really great spectacle, but also there was no like really visible hiccups. I know when the cauldron <laughs> was getting lit up, when Cathy Freeman was up there, there was a bit of a delay, but yeah, it really went off without a hitch. And I think, you know, when you look at the other kind of annual major events in Australia. So you've got, I don't know, the, the Australian Open, the Grand Prix, the Sydney to Hobart. You know, there's there's a regularity there too that Australia kind of, it's proven competence, I guess. And, you know, that reflects positively if, if there's a sporting event or something looking for a place to... To hold their next big event, you know, it's obviously going to be a bit, uh, advantage if if the country has already done it before. So it's not replicating exactly what's happened before, but you, you've shown you've had the ability to kind of host it. And I guess another part of that is obviously Australia is a relatively wealthy country. It's got existing infrastructure for lots of different types of sporting events, and it has the ability to invest and build new kind of things too if needed you know even things like uh, accommodation so I know that the the FIFA Men's World Cup the requirements for bidders for that is you have to have some like I think 70 plus hotels for the teams and the referees and that's not even including spectators and things so I think having that yeah that kind of foundation of already existing infrastructure the ability to invest in more if needed I mean the tourism element too people can come to Australia for a sporting event but they can also you know go on a beach holiday and go see the Great Barrier Reef or see Sydney as a global city that kind of thing some things kind of might you could argue play against Australia so for example I mentioned the the Men's World Cup before so there has only been one FIFA Men's World Cup held in Asia ever and that was the 2002 Japan and South Korea the Qatar World Cup last year I guess that is in the Asian Federation but my point here is that the time zone in one of Eastern Asia time zones is is not ideal for TV rights and things in big markets of like Europe and North America so potentially that, that plays against it when that's a consideration. But I think, yeah, I think that there's a lot of uh, kind of clear benefits that, that have played Australia's advantage. Yeah, definitely. And I think it also adds like, you know, to our own sporting culture, like it's such a huge part of our identity. I think, you know, sports can, sometimes it can definitely be used as a positive like tool in diplomacy. And then there are times when it can also be used as a way of sending a message, maybe like, in, like you referenced the Asian World Cup that Qatar was hosting and how, yeah, I think I remember back then there was a bit of a boycott with that as well. And there have been a number of other like situations where sporting events have been boycotted. So it kind of highlights that the power of sports to advance diplomacy or to, you know, sort of set a standard or send a message. So it's definitely a very powerful tool. Yeah. So I wonder, did you have any experiences yourself like growing up? Did you attend any of these kinds of events or have any recollection of them? So I'm from a regional town in Western Australia. I grew up there until I finished high school. So there, <laughs> there definitely wasn't any world-class sporting events there because it was only about 20,000 people. But then when I went to uni in Perth and then have since lived in Sydney and Melbourne. So I have seen like a 
I love going to the footy and I've gone to like finals and things with a huge atmosphere. I don't think I've actually been to that many international sporting events though. I could, none are coming to me right now off the top of my head. So <laughs> unless I've completely blanked on one, I, I don't think I've been to the Australian Open actually. That was pretty yeah. cool. But yeah, I've never been to like a World Cup or an Olympics or anything like that. So definitely on the bucket list. Yeah, and I haven't been to one either now that, now that I've asked you, but I'm sure there's there's a special kind of energy to it. I've been to like a lot of footy matches and grand finals as well. And it is sort of this bizarre experience of being around like tens of thousands of people. And it's very like emotionally charged, right? Like mm. it has like the power to bring people together and to bring nations together. So yeah, it's definitely a very interesting area of diplomacy that's growing and that we just genuinely like enjoy in Australia. <laughs> So I guess we wanted to hear a bit about your thoughts on the diversity or like the diverse representation of countries, including like, for example, in the Women's World Cup with our ASEAN neighbours like the Philippines and Vietnam. And yeah, maybe hearing your thoughts on how events like the Women's World Cup can influence and impact the international sporting landscape as well. Yeah, so I think like in, in terms of like focusing on like Australia for a second and its relations with like countries in the region, both Southeast Asia and the Pacific like its immediate region I guess so there's obviously kind of the shared affinity that Australia or that a chunk of Australia has with the Pacific in terms of rugby that's been a real kind of key element for that Australia Pacific engagement as well as a lot of Pacific players playing in like the Australian domestic leagues and things and the the depth of Australia's presence in the Pacific sporting landscape gives it quite a bit of ballast ballast and is I guess a comparative advantage when you're comparing it to other gain influence in the region so that there's a good piece in the strategist by a guy called Daniel Millis who works with Rugby Australia kind of talking about that I recommend if, if people want to have a read to, to go look that up and then you've got you know the Minister for International Development and the Pacific Pat Conroy he's he's been you know talking about rugby a bit in the last couple of weeks I think about the Fiji team and about the potential for PNG to have a team in the NRL so I think that's like a, a really key way that Australia can leverage sports diplomacy in Pacific. In terms of Southeast Asia, I think it's a bit more difficult. There's not that kind of shared affinity for one particular sport. Maybe football, soccer, football might be a logical one because it's there's like a, a baseline in every country. It's got like fans for that. But yeah, it's it's definitely one for that Southeast Asia engagement. It's, it's a bit trickier, but there's definitely scope. Uh, in terms of like international sporting landscape, you know, things like Philippines and Vietnam and the FIFA Women's World Cup, I think it can only be a positive thing. You know, it's, it's the world game. So, you know, having their country represented at those types of tournaments, you know, it's, a, it's an element of national pride. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of a snowball effect where if you team there, there's lots of um, support, then you get a bit more funding for the grassroots stuff and it, it kind of builds and you see improved results over time. And that's good for like, particularly like young girls, like you look at the, in Australia participation in like young girls sports really skyrocketed after the after the World Cup and Matilda's almost fairy tale run. <laughs> and they got knocked out just short of the, the end. But yeah, when, when the whole nation kind of gets on board, I think that's got a real galvanizing kind of effect that can have a lasting effect in terms of, you know, just building that, that base that can keep getting built upon. 
yeah, having role models, you know, for young people that they can look up to that aren't, you know, that diversity has been a bit of an issue, I guess, in, in sport. Like, as you get countries have their teams come up, little kids can look up and say, hey, I can actually do that. So, yeah, I think I think that'll have a good lasting impact. And then, you know, if you look at the winning teams of the World Cups, like in, in the men's and in the, well, in the wet, in the men's tournament, sorry, I think no team's ever won it that hasn't been from Europe or South America. And then in the women's, no team has ever won it that hasn't been from Europe or the US, aside from Japan, I think. So, you know, there's there's definitely scope there, hopefully in the future for the, the winners to be <laughs> a bit more diverse. And yeah, it's good to see teams from Southeast Asia and beyond kind of participating in these tournaments and making it through. Yeah. And as you said before, with the impact of the Women's World Cup this year, I think I read that Sam Kerr opened a soccer academy for girls. So it definitely has the potential to impact really like meaningful change and like social justice and activism and things like that. I wonder if you had any other instances like events wherein sports was seen like in the angles of, you know, soft power, symbolism and activism. Was there anything that would come to mind that you might want to highlight? Yeah, I guess sport is almost like a universal language. So, it's, and when you have these big competitions where you're bringing together people from across the world, it's kind of like really strong symbolism, I guess, of, you know, that idea of a global village. So you, even with the Olympics, you, you almost literally have a global village with all the athletes and stuff. But even the fans, you have all these kind of side events and things that building those kind of people to people links. I think it's a really good way for people even to learn about different cultures and things. So, you know, you'll see particular teams have little niche kind of cultural things that they do. Like, obviously, that I think everyone knows the haka, the, the Māori haka from New Zealand. So, And a lot of other Pacific countries have their, their own kind of tribal dances and things. So stuff like that. I think people learn a lot through sport that doesn't feel like they're... It doesn't feel like a chore of learning. Like, a lot of people probably, they'll see a country or they'll hear a country name and see a flag. They probably wouldn't have seen that without watching a sports tournament or something. And again, look, I, th- I think you mentioned it before, there's, there's the role of sport for kind of shining a light onto topics that might not get shone on otherwise so or that help kind of push the dial if it needs to so with obviously during apartheid in South Africa a lot of countries just kind of boycotted South African sporting teams and they weren't invited to, to a whole lot of um, different ornaments and things and you know it wasn't the determining factor in ending apartheid but it was definitely a factor in that so I think those yeah those kind of symbolism soft power activism they're all interesting aspects of, of sports diplomacy i guess again there's like a it's not all positive there are some negative aspects of it where the kind of the term sports washing which is really about you know redirecting public attention or unwanted public attention away from kind of unethical conduct or questionable human rights record those kinds of things so you know you mentioned before i think Qatar, there was talk about the the migrant workers there some of them dying on the building sites and just not having adequate rights and things in the country saudi arabia too that's a similar kind of concerns on human rights women's rights lgbtq rights and they've as well been splashing lots of cash on their own domestic league they've got like cristiano ronaldo now playing for one of their domestic saudi teams and they sponsor the the new kind of live golf tournament and i think yeah that's that's definitely worth mentioning it's not the the key issue in sports diplomacy but it's like i guess the flip side of it 
where it's it can be used to promote a country's national values and identity, but it can also be used to kind of try to gloss over some of the negative aspects too. Yeah, definitely. Like it just kind of shows the power and potential of sports as a tool in this kind of space. And even that made me think of, you know, the Colin Kaepernick, like taking the knee in protests of racial inequality during the police brutality in the States and things like that. And I think it really speaks a lot to how we view sports uh, athletes, like they are ambassadors and they really do do that job in the diplomatic space that we maybe don't view so much in that light but i guess engaging with these different kinds of stakeholders or actors and looking at our resources and how we can best like mobilize them to uh, improve the way we engage with each other in the region and beyond kind of kind of leads us to your whole of nation concept that you're working on with AP4D so We'd love to hear a little bit more about that. So for our new listeners, can you describe a little bit about what the Hall of Nation concept is? Yeah, sure, actually. So if people have been kind of listening to any recent kind of major speeches or looking at recent government documents that have been released in Australia, they would have noticed this kind of Hall of Nation term being bandied about um, quite a bit, actually, in the last kind of year or so. That question of what it is, that's actually a really kind of pressing question because the kind of the work that AP4D are doing on it, where we've been undertaking consultations over the past few months and we're going to launch a paper that tries to unpack actually what what does a whole of nation approach to international policy look like? So at its core, really, it's it's about, as the name suggests, like you have your, your whole country, right, that is engaging with the world. You have the kind of, I guess you'd call them traditional international policy actors like the Department of Foreign Affairs, Department of Defence, international development kind of community and that type of thing. But whole of nation kind of takes it out and, and looks at stakeholders and actors that might not see themselves as international policy actors first and foremost but definitely do have a role in in that space you know whether that be business and trade who obviously would have international elements to their work or whether it's civil society you know whether it's diaspora groups or education institutions you know first nations foreign policy is a topical issue at the moment in australia the media like there's a list you could literally (laughs) spend like an hour like listing off all the different kinds of um stakeholders in that space but yeah so the you know australia's prime minister at the shangri-la dialogue said that uh, australia is committing to a whole of nation effort and then you had the defense strategic review saying that um, australia must take a whole of nation approach to security and these kinds of things kind of yeah they, they've kind of focused ap4d's work and and made us think this is a concept worth really kind of fleshing out so one of our previous kind of papers that we worked on was about looking at like whole of government kind of thing like tools of statecraft how to have a coherent narrative and strategy and kind of galvanize all the different government departments behind that and there was a kind of pyramid if you imagine in your mind you have at the top there it's like that overarching strategy you have the structures in government and mechanisms and things to support that and then you have the workforce within government to to kind of implement it 
and then that's like the top part of the pyramid but at the bottom part it's a kind of Australian society I guess so that's what the whole of nation part paper is really focusing on is that base of the of the triangle which is not always thought of as a international policy kind of vector but really is yeah, has has a lot of different kind of arrows coming out of it going to into government going outside of government out into the world yeah, I, I mean, I did a little bit of looking into the four S's, like set of pathways that AP40 talks about. Like you were mentioning that strategy, structure, staff and society. And mm. I guess, yeah, like how can Australia improve its creative application of all the tools of statecraft that you guys have been talking about. So I guess, yeah, with sports in mind, do you think, how do you think sports fits in the whole of nation approach? Do you think that it has a bit of influence or like what kind of influence does it exert on the nation's foreign affairs? Yeah, oh, definitely. So I guess part of the whole of nation thing is that it's there's issues and there's challenges and there's just Australia's general international engagement. It doesn't rely on just one actor. It's like an across-the-board kind of different actors and stakeholders will come in at different points on different issues. It's it's a very kind of fluid kind of thing a lot of the time. And there's like a, a real kind of multifaceted aspect to lots of different types of engagements. So obviously we, we've spoken a bit about the Women's World Cup recently and that is a, like a really good example of a kind of whole of nation approach to something because obviously you have FIFA as the international organiser you have Football Australia who's involved you have you know First Nations artists contributing to like the branding of the tournament you have business and industry that are you know sponsoring you know the the Commonwealth Bank I think sponsors the Matildas but you also have all the businesses around the tourism industry with people coming in you know global partnerships you have universities and think tanks that have have done a lot of research in the lead up to it and I'm sure we'll, we'll continue to do it looking and following up. You have lots of diaspora engagement as well. Like I think there was for games that didn't involve Australia or New Zealand that was still almost always full just because there's you obviously have the tourists coming from overseas but the, the local communities in Australia as well coming in. So yeah, it's, it's a really good example of you know, lots of different aspects kind of pulling in the same direction for the same goal, even if there's not necessarily... It's it's slightly different to like a whole of government thing where there's like a directive from top down saying, everyone, you need to do this this way. It's, it's more of a... There's a little bit of that, but it, obviously government can't tell private business what to do, but they can um, provide incentives or provide a bit of guiding framework kind of thing. And then it's a, almost like a bit of a bottom-up aspect to it too. So, yeah, and it, it's not all about, you know, what can sport do for the country? <laughs> to butcher your um, John F. Kennedy quote, but what can the country do for sport? So it's it's a kind of mutually beneficial enterprise as well. And things can, can work both ways. So I, I spoke a bit before about how Australia is really leveraging rugby in relations with the Pacific. But, you know, one of, one of the things that has harm, hamstrung that a little bit is it's the difficulties in getting visas. There's no, like, special sporting visa for people in the Pacific to come to Australia. So, you know, if you if you had a really kind of whole of government approach to that, you'd, you'd have, you know, home affairs, working with Rugby Australia, working with other parts of government and non-government to kind of smooth those kind of things over a bit and and yeah you've still got that objective of 
kind of driving everyone in the same direction to make things work a bit smoother and, and get that same benefit. And yeah, that the government really does see the benefit of sport. Like you would have, you might have seen that. I think in 2019, DFAT released its Sports Diplomacy 2030 strategy. That was building on one early one released in 2015, I think, which I think was the first of its type in the world. Yeah, quote right, me on yeah, that, but I th- yeah, that kind of movement, yeah. Mm. And that really kind of recognised that Australia had a unique opportunity to use sport and use its kind of sporting culture and strength to engage with, you know, our region and with the world more broadly in a way that kind of advanced Australia's national interest. And I I think I'm right in saying that the process that kind of led to that strategy was in itself almost a whole of nation process. So there was consultations that went through all the, to all the states to like community level sporting, all the different levels of sport and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's a really kind of the value that governments is seeing, not just with sport, obviously sport's a good example of it, but with the, the whole of nation kind of approach. Yeah. So it's, it's not a, sport's not a magic bullet and it's not going to work everywhere. Like there's that real kind of compatibility with rugby in the Pacific, obviously. But I think there'd be fertile ground in other areas, like, you know, cricket in South Asia, that kind of thing is probably another example. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting kind of topic that's obviously sports, not new, but I think sports diplomacy is is a relatively... I think we'll see a lot of, of movement in the coming years here. Yeah, definitely. I think so. that's the government's Sport 2030 that they released in 2019. That was based on that previous strategy that you mentioned. And that was in recognition of the influence that sports has in bringing people together, like people domestically, internationally, you know, and bringing nations together. I think, yeah, it's it's definitely you're just yeah basically reiterating that we want to have a sort of cohesive approach to things i I mean i think that at all different levels of engagement and interaction these kinds of things are happening anyway and just having that a little bit of push from that top down like you mentioned is helpful we did have an extra question for you (laughs) another another fun question if there is one thing that you could change about the world what would it be just empathy if a good amount of empathy that would fix a lot of problems i think there's more than one thing that would be nice to fix in the world but if, if i had to choose one that wasn't like a very cheesy like magic bullet that would solve probably something like that obviously that would be good but it's unrealistic but yeah i think if if people just had a bit more empathy and i mean genuine climate action w- would help too <laughs> but i'm sure you've Definitely. you've done podcasts on that too <laughs> No, I 100% agree with you. And I think like reflecting on sort of this whole podcast on sports diplomacy and kind of, I guess we were just really interested in different types of diplomacy, cultural diplomacy, and at the root of it, how we can better understand one another, like on a individual level, on a societal level, national, international level. And sports, like you said, is just one of many ways that, you know, can bridge that gap or can be a a sort of creative or like different or interesting entry point for people to engage with these kinds of conversations. I know that politics and IR can be a little bit intimidating or exhausting sometimes. So I think, yeah, this was a really uh, exciting topic for us to delve into and look at the different ways that sports can benefit us or others and, and yeah, sort of help strengthen our relations like regionally and beyond. We want to thank you so much uh, for making time um, to join us today. I know that you've had a very busy uh, few weeks with some conferences. 
So if you'd like to learn more about Tom's work or get in touch, we'll have the relevant links and details in the episode description. Uh, So be sure to check that out. To our listeners, thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and leave a review. Your support helps us continue to bring fascinating conversations just like this one. And until next time, stay curious and inspired.